Hi everyone, Lucas Werner here. If you've been enjoying these conversations about art and culture, you might want to check out the newest releases from David's Werner Books, where we've published award-winning titles on Diane Arbus, Yayoi Kusama, and Carrie James Marshall, in addition to Ekphrasis, the critically acclaimed series of texts on art. This season, look out for books from the likes of Catherine Bernhardt, Noah Davis, and Marcel Zama, as well as new additions to the beloved Ekphrasis series. Visit davidswernerbooks.com to learn more. Uh, I'm, I'm Michael Glover, and uh, my next book will be Thrust, which is a spasmodic pictorial history of the codpiece in art. And I'm Tom Brown, and I'm a fashion designer. From David's Werner, this is Dialogues, a podcast about artists and the way they think. When I approach my collections too, I do really start from proportion and from, from shapes. And for me, the idea of the codpiece was really a tongue-in-cheek way of making people talk and really just to be somewhat provocative. Only poems that emerge are the ones that work. If you, if you think of a theme beforehand, for example, most political poetry is rubbish because people know what they want to say before they say it. The, only, the, the, really, the real things, the really good poems emerge in the writing. We're taking artists, writers, philosophers, designers, and musicians and putting them in conversation with each other to explore what it means to make things today. This episode's pairing the writer and poet Michael Glover and the designer Tom Brown. Uh, about a year ago, Michael sent me a proposal for a book on the history of the codpiece, and it became clear to me that Tom Brown would be the perfect fit as a conversation partner, since codpieces have been important to Tom's designs in the past and actually in some of his most recent collections. Thank you, Michael and Tom, for doing this, for being here today in your, Thank you. In your studio. It's nice to be uh, here. pleasure to be invited. And um, I thought, given that we have an, an art historian, a historian here, um, that maybe Michael could tell us just a little bit about, A, what a codpiece is, and in the context of that, what its history is. I mean, how they were developed, um, how they became popular in fashion and in visual art. A codpiece developed um, as a way of dealing with a problem of draft draftiness between the legs. Because hoses in the Middle Ages were two separate pieces of stockings. They weren't joined. So there was this absence in the middle this scrotum shriveling absence. In order to deal with this problem, a sort of limp triangular flap of something like linen was used. As, as the codpiece was used by the 16th century, which was its heyday, it had a fashionable heyday. It lasted about 50 years, that's all. It was referred to later, but its, but its fashionable heyday, as documented in paintings, was about 50 years. By the time the 16th century came around and we see the paintings in which codpieces feature so flamboyantly and so vaingloriously, it's become something totally different. It has become something now. It's a testament of braggadocio, of vanity. Uh, and of a certain kind of masculinity. Or of masculinity, of masculine forcefulness. Um, so that's how it, that's, uh, how it came about. And I guess, the, the, obviously, the, your relationship to it, fascinating to me, because on the one hand, as we sit here looking at some of the, the cod pieces from the spring-summer, it feels to me feminized in, in a way, sort of uh, obviously in some cases explicitly attached to feminine clothing, but I think the whole idea of it as a kind of male vanity uh, feels less present. And I'm wondering how you discovered it, and, or the form or whatever it means to you. you know? yeah. I think for me, I mean, I, I always reference 
yeah, things from the past, but I, I, I like to make sure that people see it in different ways. And for me, the, the cod piece, one, I think it looks actually very masculine on, on, um, on the clothes. But for me, it was more of us um, almost taking the idea of the codpiece, but also to referencing the idea of how, I guess, maybe how the codpiece kind of evolved in regards to uh, being used in the sports world. Because in baseball, it's used, you know. Exactly. That's um, what I was and the cup. As the cup, the yeah. Cup. <laughs> <laughs> so appropriately called. Um, but for me, it was it was almost a combination of the two of them, um, the sports reference, but then also to historically, because this collection here, too, in the room was um, based on um, very classic 18th century feminine penniered clothing. Um, but it done, being done for men, you, I felt like there needed to be something that masculinized it um, uh, so that it didn't like kind of overwhelmingly feel feminine. I did say that the copies hadn't endured, but in fact, it did endure in some areas. And sport is one of them, of course. Another is ballet. Um, but it's there for the, for the first reason, the reason to protect the crown jewels, you know, in difficult situations. And it is, it is, it is um, funny how more so, I think, in ballet, that it is, it is really, it does really ex accentuate very ostentatious in ballet. Yeah. yeah, and sometimes it's so in your face, and sometimes it's a little uncomfortably in I, your face. <laughs> I found that too when you watch ballet that it's, 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 it can be a sort of distracting yeah. part of the of the costume. And of yeah. course, you, I think the funny thing about the cod piece, and that's historically been the case, that you don't ever know if it is full of air, as it were, or you know what I mean. Exactly. That's, that's always been well, a historical it was, debate. It was it was padded, you know, in order to in, enhance the braggartliness of it. It was padded with horses and things like that in, uh, in the 16th century. And it was used as a pocket in addition to being, you know... Right, so it had an actual the, function. And as a place to hook your glasses onto and to keep ointment against syphilis in and things like that, you know, it's multi-purpose. I mean, I loved reading your work and hearing that sometimes it was used for a pincushion. That's fascinating. Because, well, as you know, these, these Tudor costumes were so complicated. Yeah. To put together and to hold in place, you had to have a multiplicity of pins at the ready in your coat piece to whip them out in order to pin it back again. Mm. <laughs> you know, you said before that you thought it's a sort of masculinizing feature of the, of the collection. I mean, when I look at the collection here, part of what I think is amazing that you see for men clothing that feels like it replicates what would have been underneath female clothing at the time, meaning the sort of like understructures, you know, whether it's the, you know, and then you see structures that actually look like these corseted and then twined or wired um, uh, pieces that go on top. And, and in the show, there was this trompe l'oeil effect where, you know, the outside was taken off and there was a reveal. And I mean, is, those dynamics, of course, are in the air, the question of masculine and feminine and how they interact. But is that something that you find yourself navigating increasingly? I have always played with the idea of masculine and feminine, and I love the idea. I mean, we live in a very a beautiful world that actually is so much more accepting in regards to um, entertaining the ideas of, you know, crossing um, over. But for me, I, I don't separate them. I love the confidence that it shows in a, a, a guy who can really embrace, you know, being provocative in a very feminine way. 
Um, and then I love women too, who embrace, you know, the opposite. And I think we live in a world that is, it's, it's time for people to really start moving it forward. And I do it with my collections and I think, um, it's a lot easier for me to do them now than it has been in the past for, I think, other designers because we just live in a more accepting world. This issue of gender, gender slipperiness, gender ambiguity is such a fascinating one. It's, it's everywhere in the art world. I mean, in every capital you go to, there, there's a show on, on this theme. You mean sort of um, visual art shows, basically? Visual art shows, yeah, which I'm which I yeah. looking at. Uh, but this, this, also, this, this issue of gender fluidity also proposes fascinating problems and challenges, I think. When I went to the, the camp show, in which obviously you're represented, there's this wonderful piece by Vivian Westwood near the beginning of the show. She shows, she's showing off a pair of, um, of nude leggings. Um, and this is an ideal of male beauty. And, there's a, and, and um, there's a fig leaf covering the pubic area. There is no hint of a bump whatsoever. That's quite interesting. Uh, now, is this therefore, therefore this gender fluidity? Is that is that a challenge to 16th century ways of looking at masculinity, of, of, of using the the image of the phallus more forcefully? I think that's what was so interesting about the camp show was how you saw so much from the the past, the 18th and and earlier centuries that they did embrace very feminine ways of dressing and of living and, you know, sometimes so much more so than, than now. Than now. I mean, yeah, absolutely. And that's what made it so, that's what, that's what was so strong about that show and was that it showed that I think people, especially entering into the show, I think they thought so much, they knew so much about camp when in fact they didn't know anything about camp or they thought it was such a, just a very current idea when in fact it was a very, and that was the genius of Andrew's show, I think. Yeah, yeah. And seeing paintings like a, a Paul, more Paul Cadmus paintings, I mean, a painter that should be seen very, very widely and is not, you know, and I found the discoveries in there to be incredible. I mean, there was also, he got a Franz Haus, I mean, there, there was some, right? I, maybe it wasn't a house, but there was some unbelievable um, paintings that made it into the show too, that were just brought from all over the place. Uh, yeah, I mean, the show does, it really does depict the the true nature of camp, which was, you know, I think everybody expected the the final room, and that's, you know, so. But the two the the entrance was, I think, a, such a an amazing education for people. Right. So it wasn't that front house. It was a Caravaggio. That's Caravaggio. Show, that yeah. Incredible Caravaggio. Yeah, yeah. There is a house that's like that. But um, when you know when you were started thinking about this whole codpiece theme, I mean. Part of what uh, Tom is saying is, is, I think, speaks to it directly, which is that it's often these, what fascinated me was is these young boys, often on the cusp of manhood, where the codpiece is particularly pronounced in the painting. So you have this kind of pre-masculine character where there's a real kind of, and of course, you could paint that as showing that there's a future line, that there's a kind of real virility there. But it seems like there's probably. I, I wonder how you read some of those paintings. That yes, I think yeah, this is so interesting. The, 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 there's one of it, a young nobleman called Farnese, um, and uh, the, his codpiece. He's a very young boy. His codpiece is so enormous; it's pulling the garment down. And this is a portrait painted of his mother. 
I thought, oh, this is so interesting, you know, that this was, this was perfectly acceptable. There's nothing unusual about this, nothing outrageous. Now, what, what struck me as also very interesting, and it also feeds into a little, in, in, I feel, into, into what you've always done, Tom, is the question of the acceptability of contributions to Catholicism. In a way, it was not acceptable so much to Protestantism. Um, and this time and time again was, was, was coming up. You see some of the most, most boldest and outrageous costumes on, for example, the man who looked after the San Marco Basilica in Venice. You see that extraordinary leather suit he's wearing on the copies there. Absolutely amazing. And this man was second only to the Doge of Venice. Now, he, was, he was a revered man and, and a man of the church. So the church doesn't find this at all strange or, or, or challenging that codpieces should be, should be a part of this. Yes, it's to do with lineage. It's a part to do with the fact, yes, you will provide us with children. We, the line will continue. Of course, at a certain point, it just becomes a fashion item, meaning it becomes a, a thing that you can add to a formal arrangement simply as a shape. Yeah, I mean, I, when I approach my collections too, I do really start from proportion and from from shapes. And for me, the idea of the codpiece was really, it was almost, it was really a tongue-in-cheek way of making people, you know, just talk and really just to be somewhat provocative. So it were, for me in this collection, it was all decoration. Um, but in regards to the, the rest of the shapes, there is usually a very strong reference, but referenced in a way that you you understand loosely where it's referenced, but it's not it's not specifically or literally done that you think like you've seen that before. You've seen you see you've seen the reference, but whether it's in the fabrication or in the um in how far I push it, then you see um maybe a little bit in how it's been done differently. And the research process for you, is it kind of like an immersive? Because it certainly feels like you move, if there are references, I don't see them explicitly. Mm -hmm as you say, you know, is it like you immerse yourself and then don't look at what you have around you and sort of let things come as they come or? I am the, the worst when it comes to research. I, I sometimes feel, and this is my non-intellectual side, and I, I always admit that I'm the, the furthest thing from being an intellect when it comes to designing. I, I love to have references in my head or references that I, that I can remember from a, a film or a piece of art but I, I specifically don't have them around or I don't research them too much because I find sometimes it becomes crippling because you know it's, it's very easy to almost fall into the trap of literally recreating something. And I think sometimes in design, it becomes so much easier when you, when you just, you know as much as you know in your head, but then you forget enough that you can actually make it your own. From my, from my experience as a, of, of, uh, of a writer and as a poet, the on, only poems that emerge are the ones that work. If you, if you think of a theme beforehand, for example, most political poetry is rubbish because people know what they want to say before they say it. The, only, the, the, really, the real things, the really good poems emerge in the writing and you, you don't, you, it, it's, it's just pursuing something that is barely there at the beginning and emerges in the making, exactly as you explained your method of doing. Yeah, throughout the creation, it's it evolves in so many different ways that sometimes at the end, you, you smile because it's, it's almost very different than what you thought it was gonna be. But in a way, you know where it started and it's, it's almost a happy um, surprise and where it ends up. But you know, in, in your book, Michael, the 
of course, you've selected a certain number of cod piece images, not every single one. This is, this is not a sort of comprehensive history. It's very much a personal history in a funny way. And so in, in the same way that over-researching, I mean, I'm sort of curious about the research in that kind of a discipline, because I would assume there's a, it's much more academic, but of course, it's also quite playful what you're doing in, in, in your book. Oh, completely. And what interested, I suppose I was interested in the fact that um, it, well, the book itself was a complete discovery. The subject of the book was a discovery to me. It happened quite by accident. I was, uh, I, it was one Saturday morning. I was in one of my, I was having a love affair on Saturday morning with one of my favorite museums in London and I, at the National Portrait Gallery, which shows off portraits of the great British worthies. And I was in the Tudor room which is a fairly low-lit room. And at one end of it, there's the largest painting in the entire gallery, and it's a cartoon. And there, Henry VIII stands in front of Henry VII. And I was looking at that this, that Saturday morning. And the more I looked at it, the more I saw that, that the, the dead center of this painting was this enormous codpiece. And that like a Catherine wheel, Henry VIII's work was pivoting about this giant codpiece. And I thought, what could be the significance of this? And at that moment, as you're saying, other images rushed into me as I was thinking about that codpiece. And I thought to myself, surely there's been a book about the codpiece in art, even though it's an, a, a rather unusual subject. And, uh, and that moment, the title uh, appeared in my head as well, Thrust, as this has mm -hmm. to be a title. Such yeah. a ridiculous title. I mean, yeah. it goes with the ridiculousness the, 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 the of, of it all as well. Yeah. So all these things came together on that Saturday morning when I was looking at this painting. And I discovered there was no book. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it. Um, yeah. But yes, very playful. Yes. It needed to be playful. It needed to be playful and serious because it's an uproariously funny subject. Mm -hmm. Male vanity, yeah. the, the ginger comb of a hairpiece, all this is wonderful stuff. Yeah. We never stop laughing at it. I want to sort of come back one more time to this question of sort of the feminine masculine. I mean, when you see things like this being used in a collection for men that obviously moves fluidly between, uh, between genders, do you see, I mean, Maybe this is a sort of silly question, but do you see a world in which collections are simply go out into the world and appeal to whomever they appeal to? And they're, I mean, is that something that you think is, is nearby in the fashion world? Uh, I, it is something that I am actually thinking about because I think, um, I don't know, it is something that is very intriguing to me. And I think we, do live in a world that is more open to it. And I think it's really interesting. And I think, because um, I've done collections that, um, I did a, a collection a couple seasons ago that actually were stereotypically women's clothes, but they happened to be on men. And in a way they looked more masculine sometimes in those clothes than they do sometimes in say streetwear. Um, and so I think it is really interesting. And I think, I don't know if we'll ever, you know, cause I think there is something nice about, I think it's, it's nice that people just be whoever they want to be and feel like if they want to feel masculine, they feel masculine. If they want to feel feminine, they feel feminine, whether it's a, a guy or a girl. So, um, yeah, I think we're getting, you know, to a time that. Because it feels almost like the only thing holding us in the, the women's collection versus men's collection would be, would be a distribute. I mean, it, you know, like a distributor or the kind of sales angle, as it were, because that's the easier way to market them. But actually, you know, you could imagine a collection of yours being available in, in all different sizes and, and cuts, as it were, um, and appealing to 
to whoever sort of comes in and is, is excited about it. Yeah, I think it's just in how you approach it and how you really, like you say, how you just introduce it to people. Because I think in a way, if you just put it out there as clothing, that it um, would be interesting to see how people would perceive it. And you sort of said, going maybe back a little bit, that this interest in the masculine feminine has been with you for a, a long time. And I'm curious how that sort of featured into, I guess, your beginnings and really the beginnings of the designing and the, the, the suits and the cuts of the suits. I mean, in reinventing the suit, were you already thinking about, you know, how, how something that was a traditional masculine symbol, I would say, or at least remains that way for me, could be modified in a way that would either soften it or change its perception in the world? Was that sort of actively on your mind or was it more of an intuitive? It more... It was more intuitive and happened through the years. At the beginning, it was really just taking, I always, I was a stubborn kid and I always wanted to do things, you know, just exactly how I wanted to do them, regardless of, you know, what anybody thought. And for me, it was really at the beginning, just taking something that everybody thought they understood, a classic, you know, piece of clothing and just reintroducing it to people in a way that they thought like it was done incorrectly or it wasn't, you know, who who was I trying to introduce this to? Because it just doesn't even look like it's it should be real. Um, so it, I guess it started there. And then over, you know, since I started in 2003, there's so much that's happened in the world. And I think the idea of um, men and women becoming more interested in and, the, and being more confident in regards to being more... Um, interested in trying new things that's when the idea of you know pushing the ideas of masculine feminine because at the beginning it really started more with just fabrications using more feminine fabrics in masculine ways and in women's you know using the opposite um but now it's we live in a, such a different world even since the beginning of of this uh, since the 2000s and so I think it's, um, it's, and it's still evolving. Yeah. And to go sort of even a step further back, I'm curious, was the suit something that was sort of part of your childhood? I feel I've heard you say that there's in some ways a reference to your father and his suit wearing. Yeah, everything does start with a piece of tailored clothing. And my father is, you know, up in heaven, like laughing that he's ever referenced in regards to anything that I do. Um, but it does start from tailoring. And, you know, I grew up, big Catholic, Irish Catholic family. So we all had Navy jackets and, and, you know, so it was definitely something that I grew up in, but it wasn't this world. I didn't even know existed when I was a kid. So. So there was no sort of early, uh, it wasn't that there was a sort of fashion, fashion aspiration early on. No, it was, I didn't even realize that fashion was fashion something <laughs> other than you went to a store. I, I didn't even think like somebody actually designed the things that were in, it, it was like not something. All we cared about was school and sports. Right. Yeah. But then the, the, the simplicity and the kind of rigor of not caring or the fact that there's a kind of built-in uniform, if you live in a family like that, where you don't think about it, but you wear, that might speak to something in the aesthetic. Um, you know. Yeah. We grew up, we all wore the same thing. We all grew up basically in that very kind of, all-American uniform. Right. Um, Michael, what about you? Sort of like, how did you find your way to visual art? What was the, what are some of those, the sort of formative stories or formative pieces to the puzzle 
I mean, yours in a funny way is more traditional in the sense that I know you studied at Cambridge, you ended up as a journalist, and then, you know, how did you make your way to visual art? Were your parents interested in it? No, I came from a working class family in Sheffield. There was no art on the walls whatsoever. The only art uh, was in a book that my great-grandfather had been given as a leaving gift when he stopped working for Sheffield Independent Newspapers. It was a large volume of old 19th century prints. And I used to like it because it smelt of mold. Uh, that is the most interesting part about it. Um, I was the only member of my family who went to university. Um, um, I had a very in inspiring teacher at school who was a poet. And uh, I recognized when I heard him speak. First of all, he spoke in fully formed sentences. And that was something that never happened in our house. Our house consisted of violent ejaculations, you know, swear words, you know, not, not, not terrible ones, but swear words all the same. And I used to try and re replicate the word bloody by using the word blood a lot. Um, so it was when I met this man so at... People were shouting at each other Yeah, they were shouting at each other, and I was spectating at this. But it, it never went anywhere. It had no meaning, all this shouting. There was never any conclusion, and this low-level warfare continued the following day, equally without conclusion. But when I met this man at school, my teacher, he was a very good poet. Not only did he speak in fully formed sentences, but I could see that he spoke ironically, which means he said a certain thing, but, in, but he didn't necessarily mean that. I thought, this is very interesting. This is a way of speaking I have never heard before. So his way of talking led me to think, led me into the path of literature. So, so it was his influence that got me to, that he encouraged me to try to go to Cambridge, which I did. Uh, but then, as I say, then I, then I became a literary critic. Um, I changed to art criticism many years ago because I wanted to describe my wife's paintings. That was the principal stimulus. I've been writing a lot about poetry and fiction and biography for many years, but I wanted to write about painting. And I used to go to galleries and I used to say to myself, what five adjectives would I use if anybody were to commission me to write a piece about this painting? And I would, I would list them in my head, I imagine. And pray for a commission to pray come along. <laughs> Eventually, I was working for the Financial Times, and there was a big show of Basquiat opening in Lausanne. And I was going to Lausanne. And I said to this man, who was watering his plants at the time, I said, I'm going to Lausanne. What about writing a piece about this Basquiat show? And we, I had never written about it in my life. And he was, he, he, without turning away from his plants, he said, why not? And that was it. That was the beginning. And what I wrote, he obviously thought, was neither not much better and not much worse than what anybody else was doing in fine arts. It's a good thing about so art. So let me do another one. Low bar. <laughs> and it, uh, and it, so it, it continued. And so it continued. And the, and the, the literary criticism, of the, the writing about poetry, that continues. But uh, it it's obviously was pushed aside by writing about art. And was visual art a part of your early life education? And if not, which it looks like it's not from the head shake, it, I presume it's entered in some way. I mean, in a funny way, the words people use to describe some of your aesthetic, minimalist, things like that, of course, have, you know, for me, art historical reference, whether it's someone like Albers or, you know, sort of these people that really explore a range of color. I mean, when I looked at those panniers on, the, your, on your spring summer, I immediately thought of Velasquez and Las Meninas. Yeah. Completely appeared in front of my mind, that, you know, mm -hmm. the, the shape of that. I mean, I have to say, growing up, my mother was, I mean, my parents were both attorneys, so we, it wasn't really an artistic family. And we, you know, the same for us. We didn't have, you know, you know, art on the walls. And 
Um, but my mother always wanted us to do something. We either play an instrument or I took art classes because that was something that she knew I was interested in. But I, I stopped it very early on because we all were also in sports and sports took over. And, you know, so that was our up, upbringing. Um, now, yeah, I mean, I have to say um, art and a lot, a lot of film is where I um, get a lot of my references. I mean, the, the Penny is here, you know, specifically, and I, you know, I'm so fortunate, you know, with um, living with my partner, Andrew, he, I look over his shoulder at what he's doing and like, you know, and, you know, here I was looking, he was looking at a Vijay Lebrun painting and I thought, you know, there's something so beautiful about the idea of figuring out how that could be um, brought into the world today. So I do use um, art a lot um, as a reference, but also to a lot of um, I think I, I like very much your, 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 your point that it, it's just a flicker, a hint of something, almost out the corner of the eye, that causes the whole thing to combust from almost nothing. Whereas if you'd got a book about Vijay Lebrun, nothing would have happened. Exactly. Right, but just <laughs> seeing something, right, 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 just a momentary mm. noticing. Yeah. 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 But the thing is, too, because I, I really don't know that much about art at all, but I, I am interested in it, and I do look at art all the time. But that's helpful, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because for me, I just, I like the idea of having all those references and, and, and like I said, I just, I like to forget enough about it, you know, in order to be able to really use the reference and not steal from that reference. I want people to see, you know, just like I design, I'm in this business more to design things that end up in museums. The other part of it is I, I do in order to fund and really support this. You know, I wanted to, the, the equal conversation for, for a writer, of course, interestingly, I mean, it's funny to be in these different disciplines, but of course you've picked a path that, is, that has nothing to do with the world of commerce, as it were. Well, the, the, the point about poetry is that you, you sign up to, when you sign up to that, if you can describe being a poet to signing up to something, is that you know from the start that it, the poetry is aggressively anti-financial. There's nothing whatsoever. The consolations of capitalism will never be at your door. You know that. So you don't even think about it. Um, so you know you have to do something else to, uh, to, to help you out. So you, so you start to write about art and, and you write books and you write other kinds of books as well. But generally speaking, as with Tom, you know, I, I write the things that are congenial to me. And I suppose the advantage of being a writer is that, is that uh, you never retire from it. People, people sometimes do try and get me retired. They ask me what I did once. And then I said, well, there was a moment when I, when I wasn't even born. I'm not sure about other than that. Um, but so, I, I mean, I, w I will never stop until, until, until my heart stops because it's, what else would I do with my hands and my time and my thoughts and my brain and my whatever, whatever capacity I have to do anything? It's all invested in that. But, you know, as different as your, it's fascinating to me because I didn't anticipate this coming into the conversation, but as different as each of your metiers, your paths are, both of you have managed to carve something out which gives you a lot of um, distance from the world of kind of, of, of hyper speed, you know, of the internet, of, you know, the noise. And, um, and one sort of feels it in both of you that there's a, there's a kind of sense of calm, you know, that there's something else is being cultivated. And I guess the question, as difficult as it might be to answer, is 
how does that work? I mean, how, how do you manage to exist in a world that is so, frankly, fast and fucked up and sort of demanding and, and in your face um, and continue to stay kind of committed to those principles? I don't know. It's something to do with discipline, isn't it? It's, a, it's cleaving to oneself. It's acknowledging that there is something that is absolutely fundamental to you. And for me, it's writing poetry. Mm. I know that if I didn't write poetry, I'd go mad. And I have to do it. If I, it, is, it is part of the core of my being. So the other stuff, you know, is important, but this is much less important. So by cleaving to that, that's the kind of anchor of, of sanity and solidity and certainty. That, that gives me the kind of rootedness that, you, that enables you to be a little calmer on the surface. Mm, yeah. Yeah, me the same. I mean, if I didn't get to do the collections, I wouldn't want to be in fashion. And, you know, for me, I just, the, the, I want to be able to put ideas in front of people that make them think. And, and in order to do that, I do, you know, the more commercial side, which I love as well, but it's not what drives me. Um, he loves it. He really I love it. it yeah. <laughs> no, I do love it. Yeah. I'm very proud of it. And, you know, cause it is based on something very pure. It is based on something very pure, so I am proud of it. But every season, you see why I'm in this world and what you know, what just what deep down I really want people to see is, you know, that um, those ideas. And maybe we talk for a second um, about the sh the shows, which is sort of we've been orbiting around them a little bit. But having now watched obviously the, the number of the videos of the of the more recent ones, you know. How do those ideas develop? Is it a narrative that that sort of forms? Is it a setting that is the first thing that you kind of imagine? Because that feels very different from designing a collection. It feels really like, um, you know, like making a film or or doing something that has a narrative component and a very strong visual component, and of course, sound too. It's it's different. Every collection is different. Sometimes it starts with an idea that I I build the story around or sometimes it's a story that I design the collection into. So every collection is different. The The most important thing is that at the end, it is a fully formed experience and story for people, that there is a there is a meaning for everything. There is a reason for everything that you see. There's a reason for everything that you hear. And, there's a, and that people leave with just remembering something. Well, I think <laughs> it's a good place to, to to stop. And I just want to thank you, Michael and Tom, thank you for, very for much. doing thank this. You. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Really nice to meet you, Michael. Lovely to meet you. Yeah. Dialogues is produced by David Zwerner. You can find out more about the artists on this series by going to davidswerner.com slash dialogues. And if you liked what you heard, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It really does help other people discover the show. I'm Lucas Werner. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you join us again next time.